Welcome to the fifth episode of Reproducibility. I'm Sophia Cruvel and I'm joined by Sam Parsons. Hey. And Amy Auburn. Hello. Today we're talking about the paper, Is the Reproducibility, sorry, Replicability Crisis Overblown? Three Arguments Examined by Harold Pashler and Christine R. Harris. I actually have always pronounced a reproducibility crisis overblown. Yeah, exactly. I didn't, same, yeah. I didn't notice it was replicability. Yeah. I was just reading it from the paper that she goes. You learn something new every day. Yeah, but we, we, didn't we recently talk about the... the yeah. The, that was the, the, very, the, the last yeah, reproducibility episode. Yeah, last episode, yeah. Um, Let's not go into that wait, argument again then. No, exactly. Uh, <laughs> though someone very helpfully did post that table that we were talking about on Twitter. Yes, distinguishing yes. between conceptual and direct replication and all of that fun stuff. Mm. So maybe we can put that into the show notes we, this time. We will add, <laughs> add tweets to the show notes, yes. Um, right, I guess we can um, dive straight in. So this paper is looking at um, three main arguments that are brought to the table when people want to argue that the replicability, sorry, replicability crisis um, is not a thing or massively overblown. Um, and yeah, I guess we can just start by um, looking at the, the first argument and um, what they argue and what we think about it. Um, so I'll just read out this first argument, which is, it is a given that there will be some non-zero rate of false positives, but scientists keep this tolerably low by setting a relatively conservative alpha level, for example, 5%. Well, so from, if we try to just understand the argument, it does make sense on the extreme surface level because aren't we told that our false positive rate is what we set our p-value to be? So, you know, if we if I have a p-value of 0.05, I know that 5% of my findings will, you know, on average over time will be false positives. Um, but naturally, there's a lot more complicated um, complications there because um, how we do our science doesn't allow us to use p-values in, in that way, I guess. Well, it's yeah. almost reflective of the almost fobbed off response of how an undergrad is told about p-values and why the alpha is 0.05 in that like one sentence. Oh yeah, it's, it's false positive rate and that's why we want it. And that's it. And it's almost as if there's not been that extra level of like depth or reading or understanding to actually realize this isn't how how it actually works, right? So for instance, false positive psychology is kind of probably the strongest argument against this. Yeah, but also but also I just um I don't think the P value is meant to signal the false positive rate, is it? Because I mean No, no, but right, I think, so I I think mean, that's kind of my point. It's like that's how it's it. that's how it's often yeah. told yeah. about, sorry. Um, and that's part of the problem. It's kind of it's talked about as if it is the false positive rate. Yeah. Sorry. Cool. Yeah, I was just trying to, you know, if I would have read this argument two years ago, I would have been like, well, that sounds like that makes sense, isn't it? You know, if you don't go into more detail and really think about with the experimental practice that we use, like the ones that we see in false positive psychology, we massively inflate our rates of false positives. So there's no way that it's just 5%, you know? Yeah. 
you know, in folklore psychology, we see that even with just doing a couple of practices, um, like only reporting things that worked out or resampling more participants after, you know, you've looked at the data that that can already cause the false positive rate to go over 50%. Yeah, like we talked about in episode two. Mm. Yes. So I think um, it's really important that people understand how quickly these rates can go up. So I think that's where Dorothy Bishop, who's here at Oxford, always says that simulating data would really help. Mm. Because you can see how, like, in a three-way ANOVA, four-way ANOVA, how quickly noise can become very significant. Yeah. It's just right. Yes. It's kind of Simulations are great. <laughs> simulations are great. But also the, the argument that just that if all you have to do is set your alpha to 0.05 and that means that our significant stuff is great and our non-significant stuff doesn't exist or we only actually have a 5% false positive rate and that's fine. It's sort of missing missing an actual understanding of the statistics that we use, right? I mean, as we've said, kind of you inflate the false positive rate in so many, or the alpha in so many ways, but um, I think this paper just completely ignores that fact, right? I mean, even in the, the hundreds... Uh, this paper? This sorry, argument. sorry, this argument, yeah, not, not this paper. <laughs> Whoops. Sorry, Harold. <laughs> I was actually, I guess, like, I, I just looked at it and I was like, what? <laughs> I was waiting for you to, to finish this in some way that, anyway. Oh, uh, brain fart. But yes. Um, yeah, no, like, they, no, they, they, they go nicely through um, this calculation of taking into account the prior probability of an effect, the power mm. that you have um, to get to um, the uh, false positive rate that you, you're then next to get. Um, and I think one nice point that, uh, one thing that I found uh, really nice as a sentence was when they, um, because in their initial thing, they assume that um, only 10% of the effects that researchers look for actually exist. And then, you know, sort of discussing this, they, they talk about, you know, but maybe the prior probability um, is actually like 75%. Um, and then they say, the issue rather is the number of effects that are tested and for which, given a positive result, the result investigators would proceed to publish the result and devise mm -hmm. some theoretical interpretation. Um, so nicely is sort of pointing at Harking there. Yeah, and there is... No, please go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say, that's some amazing shade. <laughs> I'm loving the shade thrown in all of these papers. <laughs> when you put sunglasses on. <laughs> um, what I wanted to say is that there's a recent paper in AMPPS where they really talk about these prior probabilities of effects and, you know, the paper isn't perfect either and I don't think we should go into it. But I think it's something that we don't really think about a lot is that a key part of what plays into our false positive rate is the prior probability of effects being there. Um, and there is real conversations to be had about how we do our science because if we are really trying to find surprising results or cool results, they're the results where we know the prime probability of them should be pretty low and if we don't have theory, it'll be even lower. And then we can see how quickly the false positive rate goes up 
really high, like in their table one in this paper, 10% prior probability of infect at 35% power um, has a 56% chance of yielding a false positive, which is, yeah, you don't even want to think about it, do you? Explains like, you think so. <laughs> yeah, but you, you ask yourself, why, why should taxpayers be giving money mm. for this sort of work? Yeah. Yeah. And this is completely devoid of questionable research practices, right, as well, which is already mm. a big issue. So this is before people start to kind of cheat, essentially, the system and inflate alpha even more. Um, there's a really nice, um, shiny app that we could link to in the show notes as well, that where you can kind of play with the uh, the prior, your alpha and your power yeah. as well to kind of have a look at the false positive rate that comes out, and it's terrifying. Nice. Yeah, I think it reminds me of at school. I don't know whether you had this as well, but we learned about probabilities, and you'd often have this example of a drug. And the drug is pretty successful in figuring, not a drug, like a test, a diagnostic test, pretty successful in figuring out whether a person has an illness. But because of the prior probability of the illness being so low, even a, even something with you know an 80% chance of figuring it out, you still get a huge positive. Yeah. yeah. Like, well, an 80% power, if we look at the table, still have 36% full pullover rate. So something where you're like, oh yeah, that sounds like a really good diagnostic test. And then you calculate that and you're just like, holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, we should not be testing We should not problem. be using this test. <laughs> um, and I think because it's our area and because we don't talk about it as much as like curing people or killing people, it's, it's naturally not the same. But the numbers should be almost just as scary, I guess. Yeah, just because it, it, you know, kind of renders everything as a bit pointless. Well, I think it also kind of highlights there's, I think part of this argument sort of against the crisis sort of comes from people or some researchers making the assumption that the prior odds of their hypothesis being true are exceptionally high, when in reality they're probably not, right? So if you assume that your hypothesis is true before you even collect the data, mm-hmm. that's... Then you just- well, then you're just doing something like, what's it, arguing to a foregone, foregone conclusion, right? In a way. Yeah, or, or, or you're not taking into account the prior as the prior odds even as much, right? So if you say it's 10%, then you know that there's going to be huge false positive. But if you assume that, it, yeah, it's a foregone conclusion. Well, and if you build your, if you're building your strength of confidence and your effect on studies that are already mainly false positives <laughs> I think that's a thing we, we yeah. can't even one we don't normally go around thinking about the false the prior probabilities of our hypothesis being true like this is nothing that somebody asks you in like I don't know a DPhil seminar being like what do you think your prior probability is <laughs> you know, people would be like what the hell are you talking about well, but with bad theory and bad studies we don't. We have no idea, and we're probably well. And 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 sort of this um, this preference for surprising results, right? Yeah, it's kind of a perfect storm, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if most published research is significant, you kind of expect your mm. odds for your significant hypothesis to be quite high, right? But we have precognition, Sam. We naturally. <laughs> yeah, psychologists can tell the future. Yeah. 
Um, but I guess going back to the argument, it's it's just because our false positive rates are so much higher. And if you really start understanding that, you start seeing that there is a huge problem with a lot of aspects of the literature. I think that's probably a good... I don't know. Yeah, definitely. Um, and do we have anything else on, on this argument? Uh, well, I think it's I think it's funny. Oh, I think it's funny that they um, mentioned that five um, percent is a reassuringly low alpha level, um, <laughs> which sort of made me like, oh wait, when when what's it? When's this paper from <laughs> pre two thousand seventeen? Let's not mention the alpha wars. Um, oh, that was funny. Though. Well, and and has there. Do we have a better idea now? Like the power in our field? It's oh, definitely not 35%. If you okay. think of Kate Button's work on power failure, I think it's even less than 35% sometimes. Although well, that was very much on neuroscience, neuroscience yeah. where I guess the focus is different. And every time I bring this up, I have a big argument about mm. it's all about the number of trials. And so, yeah, mm. but. You've yeah. got five participants. You shouldn't be generalizing. <laughs> Just but yeah, but anyway. I, I, yeah, but yes, true. The power thing is. I think, I think I, it's I, only I, around ten. Yeah, exactly. I also have something like twenty. Yeah. So I think the we way. Just, go ahead. Please. Oh no, no, because just because like there's this weird thing where um, there's, it's, there's a similar number found for the general power, um, in in different areas. I think mm. it's like economics was something like around that mark as well. Yeah, sorry, you... Well, no, I think I think it just brings home the fact that um, if we look at the second row of table one, this is probably a very positive way to look at the field of having a fifty-six percent false positive rate. So we are going more and more into the direction of Ioannidis's paper saying that you know most published research findings are probably false, um, or at least we have kind of an a just false noise. positive rate that. We couldn't be able, you know, you wouldn't want to sit down somebody, a taxpayer who is paying for your research <laughs> and saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, uh, if you explain them what a false polymerase is, but then being like, oh, that's around like 70%. Yeah. And like we do research on clinical trials <laughs> and like things that will hopefully help you cure or treat mental illnesses and make sure your children are, you know, happy and then you're... You start going into um, yeah something that's not a very comfortable place for a scientist to be in because naturally we pride ourselves in finding them at some sort of truth. I yeah. guess going towards knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess in like this in itself would be okay. I think as they argue as well, you know, if if these kind of um, mistakes um, or if, you know if, if these if these false positives were corrected later on in the literature, mm-hmm. it would still be a waste but at least um we would be going on that general path towards knowledge i guess yeah um but and that ties not really the case right ties in quite uh, nicely to, nice to, to the next thing to the next point about replications <laughs> uh, well i mean actually it ties in more nicely to the third argument about self-correction <laughs> but let's talk about the second argument um should we take a, fa- um, a quick break first yeah sure yeah. Tea break. You are listening to Reproducibility, serving you discussion of important issues in science and psychology, one mug of tea at a time. Do you like the taste of our podcast? 
Give us a follow on Twitter, at Reproducibility. Rate us on iTunes, and tell other early career researchers about us. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter or via our email address, which is reproducibility at gmail.com. Over the next weeks, we will also release some speciality flavours, small podcast episodes talking to a wide range of psychological researchers, especially awesome ECRs that we want you to meet. If you have someone you think should come on the show, send us a message. Welcome back to Reproducibility. Um, so we've just looked at the first argument of the is the replicability crisis overblown paper, and now we're going to look at the second one, which I'll also read out first. Um, so argument two. It is true that researchers in many areas of psychology carry out direct replication attempts only rarely. However, researchers frequently attempt and publish conceptual replications, which are more effective than direct replications for assessing the reality and importance of findings, because they test not only the validity, but also the generality of the finding. Um, So this is an argument for conceptual replications. How novel. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I mean, like... I can understand this argument if we assume that there isn't rife publication bias and questionable research practices and so on that essentially turn a lot of conceptual replications into an exercise in shifting goalposts. Mm. Because if it doesn't work, it's because the context was different. And if it does work, it's because we have an amazing concept that is universally true. And if that wasn't the case, then it would be fine. But that tends to be the, the way that they're interpreted or used or harked or... Yes, yeah, so so I guess as they are as they do argue in this paper as well, sort of if direct replications were more common and more publishable, um, we m- maybe wouldn't have a problem with the conceptual replications, and then they would sort they would add more, but but they're not. Um, and actually, like so, th- this is one thing that I um, hadn't properly um, thought about before when it comes to t- thinking about conceptual um, and direct replications, which is. That um, yeah, that conceptual replication success is just so much more public um, publishable than a direct replication success. Like a direct replication, in a way, is most publishable when it fails because then you have something novel, um, mm. right? Yeah, I think I think it really brought home the point. I was at a conference last year, and they were talking about um, this cyberball paradigm so if you want to make people feel left out you have them play a computer game where they're playing against two other people who are actually avatars and not real people and they start passing the ball towards each other um and not to you and that's supposed to make you feel like super depleted and like you want to have social connection and it's everywhere in my area of research everybody uses it and i was at this conference and then they they just wanted to figure out whether they they took cortisol measures as well, and they cortisol didn't change at all during the whole part of the study, and so they're like, oh, well, it should have gone up because it's naturally a stressful experience. So like, uh, maybe the way we we administered the cortisol test was wrong. Maybe we measured the cortisol at the wrong time. Maybe we had the wrong latency, and literally listed all these problems with their study, and not for one second thought. Maybe playing a computer game where two people obviously who aren't real playing an obviously <laughs> fake ball to each other is not a way to make a, an adult feel left out. And I think that's what often happens with conceptual replications is that you then think, 
oh yeah maybe this was wrong and this was wrong this was wrong and you can never disprove something that might actually be false yeah doesn't that say something about our field that we're really willing to hear how bad a study was performed if it's a null result but if it's a significant result then we don't want to hear about how bad it was mm -hmm. we we only care that we magically have knowledge now and that's this is false equivalency and i really fucking hate it <laughs> just, yeah, it's just bias with a capital b yeah. yeah it's like it's i think we all have that bias like when i have i find i double check triple check my code more when i find a result which is non-intuitive and if i find a result where i'm like oh yeah that seems right then i like i'll look over my code a couple of times but i wouldn't you know have like a deep dive and make sure that everything's correct but actually what we should be doing is checking everything at the same rigor yeah that would actually what we probably should be doing even more is just pre-specifying as much as possible, right? So then really, if you've even got the um, analysis code done before you do the study, then um, you can you can truly check it in an unbiased way, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, like I guess the, the less you pre-specify, the more any an analyses that you do become sort of non-binding in a way or not, um, not, yeah, not, not sort of definitive. Um, which is dangerous because then you can, yeah, you can just argue until you've arrived at the conclusion that you wanted to arrive at. Yeah. But how would you now counter, like, if, if you go to somebody and somebody would say, oh, yeah, but conceptual replications are stronger because it'll show that the findings are more robust. Like, we agree that that's incorrect, but I, I'd still... I, I couldn't really think of like a really good way to, to kind of... I'm not sure if it's that. completely incorrect yeah, exactly, so much as it's yeah. different. Yeah. If that, so if, if you use a conceptual replication to talk about generalizability across contexts, great. But usually it's not. Usually it's to try and support the exact same concept as if it's, uh, it's theory-driven and this kind of underlying construct rather than we just butchered another task together that might do the same thing and we're going to hark it to death afterwards to, to justify our... I really like when they like theory. change the task a bit as well. When you find a null result and then people are like, oh, instead of using the first two seconds of this reaction time, I'll use the reaction time at like three <laughs> seconds. Or maybe I'll use the square root and times it by an imaginary number and hang it up a tree and take it down again. And then, oh yeah, and then it's significant, <laughs> you know? And you're just there going like, well, but because you're changing the task and the calculation of the results, it probably wasn't significant in the way that it was originally meant to be. And it's, yeah. it's just difficult because it's, at least in my field with like violent video games, you see that where there's this explosion in the way that you use one task to measure aggression. So I think there's now been over a hundred different ways that, which almost just one research group has used as one task to measure aggression. And it's like, well, then like, we shouldn't be doing this, but nobody really checks, so they can just be published yeah. all the time. So is that then an example of this pathological science um, oh, maybe. that they're talking about? Yeah. Right, because so they, they, they mention um, pathological science, which I hadn't actually heard before, but that's apparently just the idea that, um, yeah, that, that people get convinced of silly ideas because they're... Um, convincing and you get all these um, mm. small and it's and, and sort of easy to elicit and you get mm. all these small um, confirmations that trickle in but mm. I mean, it, it, it 
Antarctica's publication rights, I guess. Yeah. But maybe so maybe maybe that's the kind of example where some where people are using a task because it's it's simple and it does yield enough results and so many people are doing it that mm-hmm. wait, didn't we talk about this recently as well? or was this somewhere else where this idea that you know of course if you um, have hundreds and hundreds of labs working on on one effect um, I don't think we talked about this no maybe it's, 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 more it's a similar point to the but yeah no but yeah so like so if, if you have lots and lots of labs who are looking at one effect um, then of course you'll get 200 publications that will show you a positive effect but if you if these two publications are over, sort of yeah. pub, um, published over I don't know five years and there are a hundred labs involved, then that's kind of dubious because you should, you should kind of have more positive publications, right? If the effect is truly, truly there and so many people are there, mm-hmm. so maybe that, that probably also ties into this, right? So that if it's, if it's something that's easy to do and convincing and publishable and lots of people do it, then you would end up with in a situation where Given publication bias, um, so given uh, given the fact that people won't publish and aren't able to publish neg- uh, null results, um, you you'll just have these undead ideas. Yeah. That everyone's yeah, I think it really reminds me of that school. We always talked about how, like in the science, you have in like a hard science, you have different theories, and then once a new theory comes, the old theories are like overturned and then you just disregard them and then you have a new theory and then, you, and then in the social sciences they just all coexist because you don't really test them and I find like it's really sad because in psychology we could have we could have a system where we have different theories we really test them we test them rigorously if they're disproven we discard them and we could actually have a really great science but at the moment we have all these theories and all these results that just are left in the wild of, yeah, these zombies just going there and being like, me doing a zombie face. <laughs> you know? I don't know. <laughs> it's a very good zombie face. Well, well that, I mean, that really nicely brings us to the next argument, right? Oh, really? Ah, yes. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Queen of the segways. Um, yeah. Because I, I did not plan this, by I, the way. <laughs> no, it's just, <laughs> just natural. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, so argument three is science is self-correcting but slow. Although some erroneous results may get published, eventually these will be discarded. Current discussions of a replicability crisis reflect an unreasonable impatience. So I am impatient. Oh, so impatient. <laughs> Did we talk about burning but, things down? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's being impatient and there's just ignoring the fact that things are quite fucked, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, without trying to be overly blunt, let's just ignore this argument in general. I think the response to it in this paper is great, but this argument comes up so much right science is self-correcting so well, yeah it is if you don't have all of the pervasive problems that conceptualize the crisis that you're trying to argue against yeah it's like when people say oh yeah the scientists that read the studies are like well it'll actually self-correct just with you guys reading it because that will and it's like no because one we're not even allowed to criticize openly because that's seen as as bad to bad um, tone. sorry bad tone as well bad tone oh. bad you can like make you know people will think that you're uncomfortable that then i've i've had people tell me that i wouldn't be employable you know and then you're a terrorist yeah i'm a methodological terrorist 
And then what happens at that too, you don't get credit for it because like who would publish that? It's not a journal article. It's seen as kind of a negative thing to do. Three, then things don't really change because even if there's a failure to replicate, the thing just live on because there's no way of like tracking it properly. And well, and, and, and because the, the mechanisms that we do have don't work properly, right? Because nothing ever gets retracted. Mm. And you also get, you hear these stories about people even having difficulties putting corrections into their own papers because it's seen as negative. Or having to pay for putting corrections into their oh, really? own papers. Well. Pretty, or at least like commentaries on and things like that. If you, yeah. have to, if you have to pay to point out that something's wrong. The, it, that's the wrong. Yeah, it's, it's wrong in itself. Mm. So uh, yeah, so we, yeah. Like what, what are, like what kind of mechanisms do we have for self-correction? I mean, right, this, because this argument is just like, oh, you know, self-correction is a thing. It's just slow. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really slow because you know what the self-correction <laughs> will be? Is that psychological science will stop to exist because we're so fucking bad. That will be the end of my job. Just, boom. Well, that's, that's the argument yeah. that Chris Chambers makes in, at the beginning of his book is that if we don't sort this out, if we don't change our ways, you know, there are a lot of science sciences or fields that just spring up and then you know a couple of hundred years on they're just forgotten about because you know we didn't contribute anything to the way that we understand the world and they correct themselves by going finally. extinct <laughs> yes um so i guess yeah and psychology isn't that old no right? which is partly probably also part of the reason why it isn't a good position to figure these things out because mm. it's it is still in flux we're in our teenage years you know Oh, that's why everyone's being so petulant. Yeah, we're being petty, <laughs> we don't know, we're getting acne, we're ugly. And what are these feelings? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and everyone's, and everyone's got an annoying tone. Mm. This is... This is great. Science is yeah. Wait, this feels Science like we've said this before. We've said this before, We've said this before, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah. So we're actually old people, apparently. We're forgetting. I think, so, an extension of this argument that I've come across recently is not just that science is self-correcting but what if through trying to correct it now we've gone too far what if we're too worried about type 1 errors and now we're forgetting about type 2 errors because rigor stifles creativity and innovation so 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 <laughs> you I, can already hear like a bit of life dying my <laughs> my absolute contempt for the people well, making why this argument say tell us why that's wrong uh, take take that seething look of <laughs> anger and uh, turn it into something positive because it's wrong right it's that this this attempt to to find just new things in a not particularly robust or rigorous way as kind of the outcome of itself is what got us here in the first place so the argument only works if you've actually corrected things and we've only really been trying to correct these things for a couple of years now in a very small subset of our field. Um, so this came up at a clinical conference uh, a couple of weeks back. And maybe the argument's stronger there in the sense that you have to then argue about resources and availability of patients and this kind of thing. But that doesn't change the fact that the rigor of the study wasn't good enough in the first place to make solid inferences. So... Uh, so you need a basic level of rigor for any level of creativity, creativity to be worthwhile, as far as I'm concerned. 
And without that, you're just adding narrative, storytelling. Storytelling is our favourite little thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, well, I think, you know, when people say that initiatives like register report or pre-registration, that they stifle creativity, I think that they don't. Yeah, they make your life harder. Like, if you were to compare it to, you know, a couple of years ago... Mm-hmm. But I feel like, I, you know, this is something I really love about the job is the ability to be creative. And I don't think that me putting in checks and balances to make sure that my work is robust is stopping me from being creative. It's, it's, it's encouraging me to learn more, to really think about what I'm doing. And so I think the, the creativity is just a bit different there. Yeah, well, it's, it's just creativity that you can support statistically basically <laughs> right isn't it's um it's the right kind of creativity that you're then still able to yeah. to do to, to have but um well there's almost there's kind of like two sides of creativity or maybe not sides there's two aspects of creativity that come up there's the one that's coming up with something just absolutely bizarre that you, why, why would it be the case in the first place or as we said something that has a very low prior or it could be coming up with very creative and innovative solutions to solve the problems of rigor, right? So like multi-lab collaborations are a really creative way to try and solve the problem that we don't have a big enough sample size. Um, the Psi Accelerator, which Sophia knows a lot more about than I do. Do I? I think I just have a t-shirt and that's what I think I do. <laughs> <laughs> Sophia has a t-shirt and therefore knows, knows, knows more than I do. Thanks for the t-shirt. <laughs> But either way, that like these are the really innovative, um, innovative solutions that I find a lot more impressive than a really unlikely hypothesis that you find a p of point oh four eight. Yeah. Well, I agree. So, yes. <laughs> Amen. Just, <laughs> just ranting now. Literally preaching to the choir. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, not literally, we haven't sung yet. No, we, Sophia and I are in a choir, but um, we're not going to bless you with our our beautiful voices. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, well, Ed, if any listeners disagree, then feel free to argue same. this point because oh, yeah. really, <laughs> oh, sorry, so I, 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 well, I mean, argue in like a lively debate yeah. kind of mm. nice way, not like let's fight in the street, but like. But let's fight on Twitter, definitely. Well, it'd be a really interesting discussion, yeah. right? Because that's how mm. we pick apart the different ways that we can promote innovative solutions to have greater rigor, for example. Um, that'd be nice. Well, I think um, we've probably dealt with this argument quite well. Um, I think the last thing that we could talk about is whether these three arguments are the main arguments still, because of course this paper is from 2012, isn't it? No. Oh. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. I can't find it right now. But um. Um. Yeah, I can't either. Yeah. Okay, it's from some time. I ago. think, well, it's, it's definitely not from right now. Um, so, what I, yeah, what I think what might be interesting It must is be 2000, before, yeah, 2012 or so, because none of the citations are after 2012. Yeah, so I think it's something, yeah, but yeah. it's definitely not now. So um, I think something that might be interesting to talk about is whether um, these are the kind of arguments that you're still likely to encounter now, if there are any other big arguments that you encounter now. Um, 
Yeah, what do you I think? I think now, like, most of the arguments are more that people disagree with things, like, solutions to these problems. Like, people disagreeing with pre-registration because of the creativity issue, like, like you said previously, Sam. Um, people disagreeing with, you know, the way that we go about to, for improving our science. I think, for me, those are the, you know, I think you either ignore the fact that we're in a lot of trouble because you don't engage with the literature at all, engage with the arguments at all, or you criticize, you know, the way we are trying to prove it. I don't know. I think those are the, there are no like n arguments that this is, that we're actually all right. I don't know. Maybe yeah, well, I mean, like, so um, I think it's funny that you mentioned ignorance because yeah, sure, there probably are people who just entirely ignore this. But I think there's also this kind of selective ignorance where people sort of go, well, you know, this is a problem for, say, social psychology, but not for insert field here. Yeah. Um, which is difficult to, um, to argue against. But I don't know. Well, and so um, in this journal club, uh, it was led by Dorothy Bishop, which was awesome. Um, because she's awesome. Um, but she, she <laughs> raised this point. We really are. Um, but she raised the point that there's, there's arguments that come out, for example, a, a critique of the Open Science Collaboration's 100 effects replication project, um, that all that you need is a paper to come out that criticizes it even very badly. And then that gets cited alongside the attempt, just as, but also see X, Y, Z, yeah. And that's enough to create just so a little seed of doubt in the in the issue, and it's almost it reminds me of climate change denying, right? It's this kind of oh, there's a tiny seed of doubt. Oh, but it was it was really cold this winter, and therefore everything's fine. It's like it's essentially an irrelevant argument, but it's just enough that people can switch off, or they allow themselves to switch off, and then sort of yeah, like either. Well, either people are clutching at, th at straws why they shouldn't be engaging with these issues, or if they, you know, don't have any straws to clutch, they start arguing that, you know, we're aggressive or, you know, oh, yeah. the tone is not right or all the solutions are actually really bad. And I think, yeah, that's where, that's the other kind of battleground at the moment. Yeah. And that's really difficult because those are not actual arguments, right? It's a classic thing to sort of distract from actual arguments. So probably the, the kind of arguments that they presented in this paper are still arguments that people might make if they engage with this. Yeah. But the much more difficult thing to deal with right now are all these political things that are much harder to get at. And some practical constraints, right? So I, I can understand from a senior PI perspective, you're not going to down tools and spend six months learning R and replications and and actually like fully. But, but why? Well, well I, mean, I mean, so e even just from a, a managerial stance, I can understand that there isn't a huge amount of time, but you, you can still do a minimum. I'm not debating that, but you, as the senior researcher, you're probably not going to be the person leading it. It's probably going to be your students or your postdocs. And that's great. But if that's the case, then you need to let them do that, right? Um, and that's where I think some of the resistance comes in. It's, oh, I don't have time as the senior lead special person. So therefore no one has time or I'm not willing to let other people get on with this. So I, I mean, problematic. 
which is yeah, problematic because in then, itself. Because then, then that kind of thing of, oh, the kids are all right, um, sort of falls apart again. But actually, I'm not really sure why we're okay with people not furthering their education just because they're in certain positions. And obviously, you know, they have lots of constraints on their time, but would we accept this in other areas? Like a doctor? Um, yeah, exa- for example, would we accept a doctor to go... <laughs> the real oh, doctors? Yeah, or, 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 or I don't know, like, or, or a judge. Would we accept it if, you know, if they sort of went, well, you know, I finished my education 60 years ago, but I don't need to get, um, still be in touch with what's happening in the law currently. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't be okay with this, and we wouldn't be okay with it with doctors. Yeah. I think, I mean, I guess it's... And no, those I, are people who also don't have a lot of time, right? Yeah. No, I, I don't disagree. I think the point that I'm mainly trying to make is you can be on board with this without having to be necessarily the person that knows everything about it. Yeah, sort of as sort of mini steps. Well, I think right? I think yeah. that's normal. Like in a lab, yeah. not everybody knows everything. They'll be the person who's really good at R. They'll be the person that's really good at you know programming things, at designing experiment, at running experiments, and as so a PI. Yeah, yes, yeah, so PI, nice. you're going to employ people with complementary skills. Um, and I've I find like I think it's a really okay if the PI says I, I you know I really I've read up on this issue I get it so I'm going to employ someone to check our stats you know and to make sure super so I think I think there are there are different ways to to deal with these issues but yeah I, I get the general notion of both of you yeah I think you just you, you don't have to be completely on board and up to date with everything to not stand in the way or you don't need to be able to do everything yourself in order to see value, see the value and see the importance of certain new tools or approaches. Yeah. Maybe. But, yeah. but still read a little bit about replications yeah, and the, the importance because, of open science, etc. otherwise you don't really get the, the importance, right? You don't... Well, it's like with a doctor, like, yeah, you might, you might, you, you should understand that maybe this kind of operation doesn't what shouldn't, you know, has been disproven to be good and we should do a new kind of operation. And you can say, I don't have time to learn this new kind of operation, but I'll make sure <laughs> that somebody in the hospital will do it and I won't do my old style. Importantly, exactly. Importantly, you do yeah. not continue <laughs> doing operations that hurt people, <laughs> which is low-key what's still happening. So, yeah. In psych, no? I yep. think, yeah, enough metaphors for today, yes, guys. Yes, so many metaphors. Stop hurting people. Yes. <laughs> Baby, Stop hurting. don't hurt um, me. Yes, no no okay. Ooh, now there is a <laughs> reproducible choir. Uh, well, I think uh, I think this is probably a very good part to end on. Also, can I just note that it is only 3 p.m. We're not recording this in the pub. <laughs> We're just happy, apparently. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. See you next time.